0: Welcome to Charla Cultural, a little chat about culture from Asterix Journal and City of Asylum. Me llamo Carla Lamb.
1: And I'm Adriana Ramirez.
0: Today, we're hanging out with Elena Maria Viramontes.
1: Elena Maria Viramontes is the author of The Moths and Other Stories, and two novels, Under the Feet of Jesus and Their Dogs Came With Them. She has also co-edited with Maria Herrera Sobek two collections, Chicana Writes on Word and Film, and Chicana Creativity and Criticism a recipient of numerous awards and honors, including the John Dos Passos Award for Literature, and a United States Artist Fellowship. Her short stories and essays have been widely anthologized, and her writings have been adopted for classroom use and university study. A community organizer and former coordinator of the Los Angeles Latino Writers Association, she's a frequent reader and lecturer in the US and internationally.
0: Today, we're going to switch up our usual format. We'll invoke the muse, talk about Elena María Viramontes, and set up her performance from November 2016 at City of Asylum on election night, no less. We'll listen to that performance, then we'll listen to an interview Adriana did with Viramontes. We'll also chat some more and finally transition to what we've been reading and some remedios for the road.
1: Bienvenidos. And now we'll listen to our voice of goddess, Alexis Jabour. invoke the muse by reading from The Excavation of Identity as a Political Act, a conversation with Elena Maria Viramontes by Elizabeth Rodriguez-Fielder, published in Samsonia Way Magazine and at Asterix Journal.
2: So between 1920 and 1940, it was a very interesting time where they were really trying to discover what it was to be American, even though my grandmother and my grandfather were Mexican. It was a time that I'm excavating myself in my work because it was such a transition for them. My mother was very different. She was raised Mormon and converted to Catholicism to marry my father. Though she had an altar at the house that my father built, which is where I got the inspiration for Under the Feet of Jesus, because any important paper she literally would put Under the Feet of Jesus. But she was never somebody who told us that we needed to go to church or imposed Catholicism on us. In many ways, she had a great belief in God, but she was not of the institutions. I guess part of it had to do with getting away from the Mormon church. The other part of it had to do with not agreeing with the Catholic church either. My sisters and I didn't understand how unique they were in their resistance. Whatever my mother's politics, whatever my mother's religion, I saw that she was a creative woman. I acknowledged that not everyone saw what I saw. That was one of my primary inspirations for wanting to write about women, especially the women in my family. My sisters were very rebellious, but only within the confines of their Gerald household. My father believed in curfew, in women not going out on dates without chaperones. But my sisters rebelled creatively, and with my mother's help too. If they would go out with a boy, my mother would be in the kitchen waiting in case my father woke up.
1: Did you grow up in a household with a lot of rules that was restrictive?
0: You know, I did. Um, I also grew up, so my grandma in Mexico City raised me up until the age of five or six. And I was always told, you know, my that my mom was working and going to school. And, and so when I lived with my parents after that age, they were so overprotective. And then, yeah, in my teenage years, like if I even thought about going out, they needed to know who was going to be there. They needed to know, you know, their their parents numbers, their addresses, like curfew for sure. And then my parents will joke about it uh, to this day that they wanted like people's like social security number just to know where I was.
1: And Yeah.
0: yeah, so I definitely grew up in a in a. A very strict household. And I think that gave me a sense of rebelliousness and autonomy later in life because I definitely have this like inherent distaste for authority.
1: <laughs> so I grew up very like one more level of restriction, I think, than you. Mm. Um, I wasn't allowed to drive at night, even after mm. I had my driver's license. Oh, wow. Um, I wasn't allowed to give people rides. Which teenage economy, right? Like, so many people give you rides that you have to give them rides when you have a car. And I wasn't allowed. And so that created issues. Um, Yeah, I definitely snuck out. I lied. I was going to say, you did it
0: anyway, didn't you?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was horrible. Like, I was a horrible teenager. And, you know, I, I say this to my husband all the time. I was like, oh my God, I was horrible. And my husband will say something like, you were only horrible because it was so strict. That's really true. You know, because like the stuff I would sneak out to do is like go bowling with my friends. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, like I grew up on the border and sometimes I would sneak out to go to Mexico or stuff. But most of those times I actually did have permission to go out. But I would lie and say I was going to a slumber party or, or something like that. And then instead I would go to Mexico and party. But you see, like, that's horrible, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so mean- uh <laughs> I have empathy for parents
0: like these days because you never know like you could be really strict and then yeah you end up with like really creative people that like are really good liars in their adulthood like you and I and um or you are totally free and like cage free or what do they call it like those kids that
1: are running around these days free range free range (laughs) free range. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. It is like chickens. It is like, it is, <laughs> there's an egg parallel there. Um, then yeah. that could backfire though.
0: Then your child is like totally dependent on you or, you know, there's like different ways that like no matter, you can't You're like, necessarily mess them foresee. Yeah, you can't foresee the outcome of the way your child is going to develop. Um, but like Mexican parents try super hard and it's all love, you know, the intention is all love, you know, I feel yeah.
1: in the end. Well, I think- Okay. So a couple of things that I've been thinking of, which is, have you ever heard this metaphor about like holding sand in the palm of your hand? Yeah. And if you, you know, if you squeeze it really tight, right. Mm. All the sand is going to come out and you're going to end up with like a tiny ass lump, you know, whereas if you leave your hand open and still, right. The sand will stay. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that there's something to that, you know, which is if you give people freedom, then they won't necessarily have the, you know, the need to rebel so intently. Right. Um, I don't know, but then I think about my kids and I think about, okay, what is the point of having kids? I mean, and I think about this all the time, right. Which is like, well, is it my job in life to like (laughs) force them to be a certain type of person? Mm -hmm. Which is, I think, very much how like my parents' generation thought of it, you know, which is like, you are going to be a good person if I have to beat it into you. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And so like, you know, we must protect your virtue Mm -hmm. to make sure you're not slutty and that you don't like, um, essentially like, you know, disparage your own reputation or self. So we're going to keep you locked up in your house.
0: Yeah, or the reputation of the family. Or
1: the reputation of the family, right. And, you know, marry off to someone like so that's So that you're still benefit. pure, right. You're right. still pure and untouched and mm-hmm. innocent. So it's like female innocence, though, is so synonymous in our culture with restriction. Absolutely. And I would yeah. say that that is somewhat true across borders, like internationally, right? Like thinking about Asia Jabbar's book, A Sister to Scheherazade and her memoirs, she talks a lot about growing up Muslim in Algiers um, Mm -hmm. and how in many ways there was kind of that same sort of cultural pressure to be pure and through a kind of imprisonment, like the imprisonment of the female. And so, yeah, I was thinking about this, right, which is, you know, this idea of like women not going out on dates without chaperones and yet how women have always figured out how to rebel creatively. Yeah. I love that line. The most like, you know, hidden away, tucked in girl with the most restrictive father somehow gets pregnant, you know?
0: (laughs) 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 then it's immaculate conception
1: so many um fairy tales and so many stories are about this guy who's going to rescue this woman from what is essentially her parents yeah
0: Uh, it's hard to it's yeah and then like the family there's so much to to really say about that from like that excerpt too because you know if you fast forward to the future and then um Elena Miramontes is excavating that history from her past and then like talking about her her mother her sisters her grandmother and then like what is it to to become your own home in a way or like to move around like oh you're moving around in the world with like a shell perhaps is like. A, a metaphor that we could use there. So many women have tried to like have come out of that restriction, just with I want to say like insight to to the culture and and like trying to dismantle where it's coming from. Yeah, like, um, how many generations? How many generations? You know, oh. like how much trauma, like inherited trauma from <laughs> you, great have grandmothers.
1: You seen, have you seen that TikTok?
3: Thank you. My gosh, this is wonderful. It is, uh, it is so wonderful to be introduced by Andy Cruz, and so wonderful to share the, the evening with uh, Mary Gatesgill. I mean, what more can I ask? Um, what I'm going to do is just read a, a small section from uh, my work in progress. It's called The Cemetery Boys. And all you need to know is that um, the PFC is a Mexican boy. And he's modeled after my uncle who um, who served in the in the war and was in the Philippines and in Okinawa and the reason I started this this novel was because of the controversy with the Ken Burns uh, documentary that excluded completely uh, Latino soldiers and so I was heartbroken because I knew my my uncle who is my who was my favorite uncle uh, came back a very very broken man and uh, and suffered throughout his life. And so I just felt, you know, I, I want to reinsert us back into the history. And so um, I started this. But then to start working on World War II, I started thinking about the, the communities that, that are most affected by war in their community of colors. Uh, community of colors. And um, you know, like I think of, of the Vietnam War, uh, there are two, the two most common names in the Vietnam War Memorial are Johnson and Rodriguez. You know, and Johnson is either black or white, but guess we know, you know, and so we're not part of that narrative. And so, to do something like this, then became a story that wasn't just about a family, but about a city of Los Angeles, then about the Philippines, then about California, and that's where I'm going nuts. <laughs> and so, I, uh, just a, just a small section. I'm going to do sweeps. I, please forgive me. And so, um, just a, just a little taste. This is from book one, section two. When the Eastside Journal headline announced, US calls all reserves, the 10th and 11th calls were combined and 700 local Eastside boys, including the PFC who had received as 1A selective service classification postcard order number type 691, were inducted into the Army by the local board number 203-91, Los Angeles County 037 in the month of June alone, 1940. Barely nuzzling mustaches and hardly embracing full romance, much less a hearty meal made with flour, beans, and beer stored in commodity barrels, the Eastside boys traveled in bulk in caravan transports on grimy and desolate stretches of Route 66 to cap needles close to the Nevada California border in such elevated desert temperatures the heat pressed against their razor scalps and the hot sheets chafed their pledging scrotums. A nation on the move, the caravan transport was but once in the expansive newsreel, wheeling thousands and thousands of young men to various military camps and corps, some traveling for the very first time out of their pueblos, townships, valleys, counties, Indian reservations, and state lines. They reported for duty, carrying with them their meager possessions in old rucksacks, the repositories of habits inside bedrolls, a neighbor's borrowed valise, beaten suitcases reinforced with my gay hemp containing the trinkets of family heirlooms, a wooden comb, a ribbon clip of a beloved's curl, great grandpa's soiled Sunday missile. Some carried nothing more than a birth certificate inside a shoe repaired with a cardboard, while others saved the gallstone keepsake, a Confederate Union button stitched into the hem of their coats, necessities like a bent spoon inside a trouser pocket fast available for staking gr- uh, grub. Newly inducted, newly scrubbed and solemn-faced, they journeyed from sea to shiny sea, under dawn's early light, in the rapturous alabaster twilights, and across fruited plains and flatline prairies where the deer and the antelope played. Ships assailed colossal oceans, plains impaled spacious skies, trains sally through river bridges, looped around purple mountain's majesty, into the pine forest thick with the scent that stuck like sap crested the apex of the ancient redwood dense ancient redwood dense spruce silver cottonwood slope down into the amber grains of the excuse me slope down into the amber waves of grain and irretrievable hours of tumbling tumbling of high-rises scraping of oil refineries and still factories, their smokestacks catching the gleam of morning's first beam. The massive de- de- deployment in full operation, locomotives chugging west, something to behold. Brethren Feeds shipping south, a marvel of efficiency. Trucked cargoes heading north, fueling the military engine. Dusty buses roaring east, trooping all those draftees through all that aboriginal infinitude of American vastness. Under orders to revise their unspectacular lives, the Mojave Desert sizzling right through the very soles of their new ankle-laced boots, the boys have finally reached the last stretch of of bushes stunted tightly to the rims of parched ravines on Route 66 finally arrived at the watchtower, the barbed wire fencing, the tar paper buildings, arrived in fiend at the grammar and punctuation of basic training. For most of his life and right up until Pa landed steady employment at the Walker's Bakery in the east side of Los Angeles, the PFC, his parents, and his three sisters, Sayula, Pomposa, and Enadolera, were forced to travel the migratory circuit up and down the fertile California landscape, searching for work on an abundance of farms and found it in Riverside's orange groves, in Oxnard's beet fields, in Bakersfield's grapevines, in Gilroy's garlic. A more proficient English reader and speaker than Amah, pa, pa was charged with negotiating transportation sought goodwill of drivers with WPA sponsorship and with enough truck-bed space to sit a family of five along with their crates of movable dry goods. Pop bartered with contractors that drove creaky buses stinking of turpentine and other such toxins. The aisle floor as sticky as dulce de Vecchi. the unopened windows broken amplifying the heat It was the contractor's decision alone to stop at the next gasoline pump station for a break that afforded an opportunity to stretch their legs, relieve themselves, share a drink of water under an oak shade, an awning, a bridge. Sometimes Paul simply had to entrust drivers in tin busy contraptions whose gazes he concluded in whispered consultation with Emma, never wandered past decent when time came to be in the company of his young daughters, but who also seemed competent in replacing a tire to puncture, fixing a Model T carburetor gone south. Once they reached their destination, say, at the outskirts of the Ingram Ranch in Popular, perhaps the Santa Susana Apricot Ranch in Simi Valley, or in Delano, where there might be vacancies in the government-sponsored Camp 101, The PFC accompanied PAW to canvas for harvest news, collect labor updates because winds of discontent, picket lines and police bulls, merciless deportation officers and unpaid wages, posed as dangerous as the lawlessness of the fields where everyone worked in deep chilled mornings or under three digit degree sun below the radar of what was good and fair. Like, like the other farm workers, the PFC's family homesteaded for months in barns, slept in decrepit sheds, derelict houses, in makeshift migrant barracks, government camps, under tarp tents along the highway, often toiling 15 summer hours at 10, at ten cents an hour, six days out of the week. They knew a plenty about the heat The fist sight swells The spider bites, the relentless itch of bed bugs, of the red ant bonze, humid night that burglarized sleep, the violent crack of morning and the white clouds congealing like curdled clumps. Even after was served for breakfast, noisy intestines still bloated with complaining want. Even after corn mesh corda was devoured for dinner, the meals were sorely insufficient in recruiting energy for another back-intensive day of picking seasonal fruit of harvested annual vegetables. Pa paired up with his eldest, Seyula. The PFC worked with his youngest sister, Pomposa, and Ama held close to the baby, Adelea. Camouflaged in long sleeves, gloves, rubber bands around their trouser ankles their mouths and noses pressed under the bandanas, the PFC's family appeared indistinguishable from the other farm workers to the truck drivers who collected them before sunrise and drove them to designated harvesting sites. At sunset, they still resembled one another as they emerged from the fields and orchards, clutching empty water bottles, holding a child's hand, their faces wrapped with a gauze of fine dust under their wide brim hats, their shoulders harmed after laying out the raisin grapes or stacking tomato crates, their backs damaged after hauling pounds of cotton or plucking tangerines and apples. The truck drivers returned them to their accommodations and they mothered gratitude in English tilted to regional accents Removed their cachuchas and hats, dusted off their soil, wiped away sweat with a rag dipped in soapy water, and felt a fleeting, frugal renewal. At sundown, the kindling the, in the pit crackling, Ama set to burning candles, to conjuring the mathematical wizardry necessary to find the extra meal inside the calculated equation of never enough. The boys in the other camps collected firewood, scrubbed their respective fire pits, raked the cinders clean. The girls in the other camps chucked the corn, boiled okra and nopal, measured the bacon fat, fetched water in the kettle. But the women, the women in all the labor camps, labored the fields, baked the bread, rolled the the tortillas, treated the lice, talked the alphabet, recited the prayers, repeated the folk tales, bathed the youngins, darned the socks, lifted the screeching, steaming kettle to brew teas for baby or spousal colic, for ridding earaches and backaches, for breech or birthing babies, for easing monthly cramping, cooling a woman's change, for bearing buds not yet fully bloomed each fireside glow casting shadows on their glistened grimaces, the dimming circle of sindal sputtering upon their glassy, exhausted eyes. Dishes cleaned, candles extinguished, the children cocooned atop corn beds. a crescendo drone of nocturnal insects over the dozy harmonica bedtime tunes. The women watched each other's kerosene lanterns sparking like fireflies, the long distance of coal black night tightly wedged between them. Thank you. I know that, I, I know exactly what she's saying because I... I in terms I, of thinking about censorship. In terms of thinking about censorship. And also in terms of, of thinking about the, the reactions and the consequences of what happens. Because I did work with a... With a city of asylum uh, writer back in Ithaca who was trying to write a novel about about incest, mm. and so she every Friday we would meet. It was wonderful. We'd meet and she would give me her pages and we would read the pages and then and then have a discussion about that. And she was, you know, it was always so difficult for her to try to to try to put to try to capture this right because of course you know if it's if it's in if it's in fiction if people can read it if you know then then uh you know then you have other eyes looking into this and saying oh my god what a horrible culture this is what a horrible right. you know uh, you know uh, how, how terrible that these are
1: and- you familiar with the katherine harrison thing she wrote a book called The Kiss. It was a, a book of nonfiction that was about um, genetic attraction and about how she ended up having an affair with her father. And what I found really interesting about it is that when people condemned it, they condemned it because it was a book about incest. Uh-huh. But they never said, oh, white people from the South are incestuous.
3: Yeah, interesting. They
1: just said, oh, your family's messed up. Yeah. Right? But it sounds like what you're talking about... Like there's a there's a different work.
3: level yeah there's a different different level of uh stakes of a, yeah if you of stakes and assumptions and things like that and so it's for her it wasn't just a question about uh, you know what are the consequences it's a question about how are these external sort of eyes in other other cultures that don't understand ours going to be judging us so I think it was it was even it was even more than that
1: isn't that a stake though that like all writers of color to some degree have to face, that you're charged with representation. You know, that as a Latina or as a Chicana writer, people look at your work as being some kind of
3: definitive insight into what Chicano culture is. Well, you know, I think uh, uh, I mean that's a mistake that 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 readers have. But I, you know, when when I read John Updike, for example, do or, or John Cheever, for example, and do I say, oh, well, this is the way all white people are? Well, right, you, you know, no, I don't. You know, but it's an assumption that people make about us. Yeah. So I always say, you know what? It's not. We should be writing about what we want to write in the way we want to write it, and not worry about readership because ultimately they're always going to have these assumptions. So you know, the hell with that. You know, I mean, did John Cheever, when he was writing about the the upper middle class, uh, you know, uh, you know, New England family and and infidelity and you know, uh, male um, uh, menopause. You know, did did people say, oh, it's you know, he's not representing you know the the American man? No, mm-hmm. they said he was a great American writer. They right. said he was a fantastic sto- short story writer. But then they they frame us. They frame us in these. In these really unfair, biased, yeah. and 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 in many ways racist. Well, I, so I remember being in high school, and this might be silly,
1: but we read um, *House on Mango Street*, mm-hmm. and everyone was like, "Insight into Latino culture, and you know, this tells us a lot about the barrio and all this stuff." And I remember reading Faulkner in class, and at one point, I raised my hand. I went, "Yo, white people are crazy." <laughs> And my teacher was like, this is not about whiteness. (laughs) And I just remember, you know, as like a little Latina going, well, I mean, House on Mango Street's not about Latinidad, right? I mean, it's about this one street, this one neighborhood, these specific people and their struggles, their stories. Right. Right. And... To say that it's allegorical for our entire community—that's some like whack Frederick Jameson kind of stuff. Yeah. Stuff. yeah. You know, is this yeah. idea that like Latinos or the Third World, which I hate that term, mm-hmm. writers are inherently trying to write this allegorical book about our countries or ourselves, and that white people aren't charged with representation the same way, and yet somebody like Faulkner is totally like writing allegories about the South, right? And so, I'm just. How do you negotiate people always trying to make it about race, even when you're trying
3: to just write a story? Well, you know, the thing is, is that but that's another thing I you know, when, when I think about, you know, just writing about my community and, uh, you know, a brown woman negotiating her existence within a colonized community it is about race but the thing is is that why does that then there, why does that become the main focus of what a, you know why not you know it was going back to what i was saying about the, this professor who told me about you know the trouble with your work is that you're writing about chicano you should be writing about people and it's like you know tell we me we people yeah yeah t- <laughs> tell me that my tell me that you know my craft is not is is not uh, you know, well-formed, or that my syntax, or that my spelling, or that my sentence structure, tell me anything, but don't tell me about the people that I'm writing about are not people, because they're my family. <laughs> they're exactly the people I'm writing about. Right, and whose stories get to be told. And whose stories get to be told, absolutely. And whose, whose stories have, uh, you know, sort of like this... this uh, this can, uh, canonized uh, value, yeah, you know this canonized value. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, for me, I'm always thinking about, you know, I, I'm thinking as a writer. You know, you think about the, 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 you think about the character, then you think about the story, and then you think about the shape of the story, because how the character, or how are gonna, how are you gonna shape this characterization? I, I'm just thinking about a writer, but because I write about brown people, all of a sudden it becomes politicized by the audience, right. you know, by, by the by the readers who are outside of that experience. You're a Chicano writer in Navidad. Yeah. 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 You know what I mean? And that in and, and it and it just it it, it uh it frustrates me in, in, in the same way that it frustrates me that I, I know a lot of the white writers don't read Latino or Latina work because they think that it's only that it's only limited to um Latino audience. Like a it's Latin a Tyler audience. Perry movie or something. Yeah, you know, and it's like and it, and it makes me nuts because I mean, people are surprised that I read everything. Well, I'm a writer. Of course I read everything. You know, of course I read everything. I, You know, I have these totally sweeps of, of you know, German literature and English literature and and, uh, and French literature and Spanish literature and Latin American literature and, of course, you know, American literature. Yeah. but uh, But, you know, don't but and it's either way around for them they they, they, they look at they look at if, if i was to say you know by you know i i call myself a chicano writer they would dismiss my work and say that's just only for chicanos
1: well or even the way that gabriel garcia marquez can say he was influenced by faulkner and everyone goes well of course mm-hmm. right but if you say you're influenced by gabriel garcia marquez they automatically are like Oh, so you're a boom writer, or a post-boom writer, yeah. or a magical realist, yeah. Yeah. or yeah. Yeah. you know, and and it's fascinating that it just doesn't carry the same literary weight, but it carries a far more political weight. Yeah, and yes. how do you? Yes. And, and I don't know. I'm 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 constantly negotiating this, you know, and I'm just like I take umbrage when people say like you're a Latina writer, and I'm just like I'm a writer. And then I'm, but then sometimes I'm like, of course I'm a Latino writer. What else would I be, you know? You know,
3: but the thing is, is that I don't. I mean, I do anywhere I go and everywhere I go, I always call myself a Chicana writer. That does because people are limiting their assumptions and and, and uh, you know and and denying their own pleasure by not reading me because they think I am just tending to that. That's their fucking problem, not mine. <laughs> yeah, well, no,
1: no, it's like, it's like every day I dress like a Mexican, like no matter what I'm wearing. Exactly, exactly. It's still, you You, you are you. I am Mexican. Yeah. And that I'm is
3: you. the it of it. Yeah. Well, I know, I know, I know that we're going to be awfully busy. I know, uh, you know, as progressive individuals, we're going to be very busy because, you know, it, it seems to me that, everything that we stand for including our principles are going to be attacked and are going to be uh, dis, um, dismantled yeah. and so uh, you know we just we're going to have to do a lot more work and i go back to you know choosing what kind of activism you're going to do mm. but i think we all we can't afford not to be active any of us cannot cannot afford not to be active so you would say there's a risk in being silent there's no, <laughs> yeah, there's a big risk in being silent. We cannot afford to be silent, and that's yeah. something that I said yesterday to to that uh, that uh, Nigerian writer who yeah. asked me about the consequences. We just can, we simply cannot afford to be. Uh, if, if we, as people who um, have some basic skills, have stories to tell, have the courage to tell it, we have to speak up. It is our I don't know, I don't, I don't, you know, it is our responsibility, it's it's our responsibility to speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves, you know, and so I, uh, you know, like, like, like Einstein said, you know, bad things happen, but worse things happen when those people who can say things against it don't speak up. And that's, and that's exactly the way I feel. Yeah. And so as writers, I think, okay, uh, remember I was telling you about Chiri Muraga, who, mm-hmm. who talked about activism and talked about, okay, whatever you do, look at it as if it's a political practice. You know, if you resist uh, a comment, that is a political practice. If you, if you have a, a particular mm. passion that you want to help, then help that passion. Right. But that you begin in a systematic way against the tyranny of you know against the well, tyranny of oppression
1: and even if you don't want to I, I was talking to somebody the other day who was saying um and I don't mean that for this to sound self-serving but like not a lot of Latino writers have won significant writing awards
3: no yeah
1: and you know she was like it says something that you did and I was like well I don't you know and I was like immediately going oh god I don't want to be political you know I don't want people to do it and you know she said to me it's already political It's already inherently political. The fact that you won, like, your body is a political space. Yeah. You know, and just by virtue of you embodying yourself and you receiving this award, that means that somebody else is going to look at that and go, here's a possibility that happened. Right. You know, and so even if you choose to not say nothing, like, your own actions and your own presence and your own self and the things that you can accomplish and do, to some degree, speak for you.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so maybe we just all have to find... I don't know, a practice that allows us to kind of, or the actions and the things that we can do, the things we can write, the things we can say, the right.
3: examples we can give. But you know, that for me, it's it's like I, I do believe with, with Shiri, I mean, you know, the, the two of us, both Shari and I, you know, we 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 grew up in the in the sixties. Um, I was I was I was evolving in the seventies, but Sherry was already out there. You know, in the in the main trenches. Really, I mean, Sherry is really a visionary. And um, you know, there there did come a time where uh, in the eighties where one has to make decisions about where to best put the these these talents that you have mm. or these passions that you have. But 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 do it but do it for the sake of. Giving voice to people who are voiceless, and for me it was—I mean, I was—I was a, you know, co-coordinator of the Latino Writers Association. I was teaching workshops, I was organizing readings, but it came a time where I thought, what is, you know, where can I be most most effective, doing these these community organizings, or actually working on my writing. And that's when I decided, you know what, maybe I should work on my writing because at least with my writing, um, here I can be I can be impactful in the community, right. but with my writing I can be impactful internationally. And so that's how I that's why that's why I, I shifted my attention fully to writing. That makes and, sense. And I still and I still feel that writing is my political practice because I am trying to humanize, uh, I am trying to humanize on the page. Uh, people that most of the nation feel are subhuman or not human or or are people that that can be easily as being deported without even thinking twice about it or people that are be you know people that are that are uh, you know having this Wall built between these two nations. I between mean, between families it's and between so families. Ridiculous. It's it's just it is you know it's 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 beyond absurd. So for me, it's it's the most important thing is to try to. Uh, you know literature literature complicates it does some beautiful i mean literature really complicates uh, a situation or makes you rethink or transform you in the way you think or at least challenges you in the way you think and so i think that okay then let me do this and let me do it the best that i can do
1: so maybe if i'm a white ally my job is to make a reading space or my job is to create a platform where i can or my job is maybe to just Step aside and give somebody else a
3: chance Right? Well, no, I, I don't think at this point We can afford stepping aside
1: Yeah, that's true <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, oh,
3: I read so many pieces
1: That were, like, you know Very well-intentioned white people Writing about race And, uh, you know, and We know some people that are trying to write complicated things On whiteness And there's a part of me that is going Yes, that is very noble, that is very good But also... Why are you taking up this space that somebody else could be taking up too? And and same You mean in terms of discussion? Yeah, in terms of discussion, like I don't know. And maybe this is exclusionary, maybe I'm wrong. You know, and maybe that I mean this is why this is an interesting discussion, but if I'm a white person and I have a platform and I have the ability to maybe get my exact same editor to publish a person of color, uh-huh. right? Isn't that isn't my stepping aside in that case a revolutionary act, right? In, in, in a way of giving up your privilege and that space and that platform that you've been given to a marginalized voice and raising another voice up. Yeah. You know, and that seems to me like something, you know, for people who, you know, if you come from the dominant, it's got to be hard to figure out how to give voice to the voiceless. Mm-hmm. And maybe part of that is giving up,
3: you know, a piece of your pie. Well, I think yeah, I think you have a point. I think you really have a point there, but I'm thinking if 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 even this person or these people are thinking about give, you know about the 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 uh the privilege that they have, I think then therefore they do have some principles. And if they have principles, it's not a it's it's not a matter of of uh stepping aside but, but fully engaging as a political practice mm. to be more inclusive. So write fully, the piece, but yeah. quote eight people of color in it, if you will. Bring a people of color and participate in this. Right. In Point this counterpoint. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In, in, in this thing, I, I really, I, I really feel that we have to, we have to engage more in this whole discussion of race. And very few people actually have the vocabulary by which to actually talk about it. That's true. Facts. And even, 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 I have to say, as we talked earlier, even between the Latinidad yeah, you know, do we have the, the do we have the type of language to to talk about nationalism to talk about to talk colorism. about colorism a colorism another yeah another big as- aspect of it you know yeah. do we even talk about it then there were there were so many complicated questions among all this stuff that yeah. it's almost like anybody who wants to talk about race. Let's do it. Let's talk about it. You know let's, let's be uncomfortable together. Let's be uncomfortable together because you know it's all an uncomfortable discussion. When we when we could you imagine if we deal with Latinidad? In our racism within Latinidad, in our nationals nationalism within Latinidad, in our like you know our exclusionary practices between one another. Sure. Yeah. Of course, it's going to be comfortable. Yeah. Uh, un- uncomfortable. Oh you know? man, I'd have to yeah. like learn to like. Argentina. That'd be. Uh, you know, and so and and <laughs> It'd be and, hard for me. Yeah, and for them too, and and for the Latin Americanists, for example, here who have it who have a big body, who. Because the, because of class, don't acknowledge or are interested in or engage yeah. in their Latino or Latin, uh, Latina brothers and sisters. But I always, I don't know, I, I, I think that, that once there is that kind of recognition, that, that this, this is no, ignorance is no longer bliss. Right, but we'd have to break hierarchical thinking. Right?
1: Well. And that's that's a huge... That's a tall order, you know? And is to ask people to no longer think and... Because I'm just thinking about, you know, like racist relatives in my family. Okay. Right? And okay. like the people in my family who say things to me like, Oh, it's so good you married a white man. You are improving our race. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And my relatives say this to me like, Ha ha ha. Very normal. And it's not... It's not meant as an ill will. Yeah. It's very normal, but it it reflects a hierarchical thinking where white is still at the top.
3: Right. Right.
1: You know, and so we'd have to, we'd have to break that and be like, okay, let's talk about being indigenous.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, you know, that's something we don't, we don't really engage that question so much. And that's a complicated question. Big time. And, you know, how we negotiate it and how we... Yeah, understand our own kind of inner colonialist tendencies
3: absolutely that's what I was saying yesterday when I when I was talking about the colonialized body yeah. when you have this self-hatred when you have this um, you know this 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 kind of uh, um, uh, acceptance of patriarchy this acceptance of of uh, of women hating as a woman. I mean, look at thirty percent of white women voted for Trump, even after they were they were shown uh, this incredible oh, I think it's misogyny. Higher. Oh, it's higher. Okay, there you go. It's higher. Yeah, it's something yeah. like sixty percent. It's terrible. But that's what I mean about the the here. It's the, we'll call it the genderized or you know the sexist or you know. But but the colonized, of course, the colonized body is is the 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 dismissiveness of your own brown skin self your black hair it's, a, it's all self-hating it's all about self-hating right. and where do we get that from we get it of course from the colonized imagination yeah. and and so when if we have that in existence and we have that interplayed with the genderized you know uh, so we're fucked <laughs> basically unless 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 we speak up unless yeah. we be, unless we engage unless we develop the vocabulary to actually talk honestly about it and part of that is making each other human yeah and telling stories, yeah, that
1: humanizes. I mean, I think, you know, part of the reason that the um, the former Miss Universe, M- Miss Machado, yes, thing uh-huh. resonated was because I mean, obviously, maybe it didn't resonate long enough, but part of the reason that it resonated throughout the election is because I think so many women have been told at some point by a man that they need to lose a few pounds.
3: Yeah, really, really. You know, how what? disgusting that was, man! How disgusting. But then there were the women that agreed. Yeah. Yeah, well, I remember looking at the there they you know shortly after that whole uh, you know the whole um, controversy with with uh, uh, Trump being recorded and saying these horrific things. Okay, um, there was a group of women that that CNN interviewed and. Um, these were all women for Trump, hmm. and they said, "Oh, he was just acting like a boy." I wasn't offended at all. I wasn't offended at all. He was just—it's just—it's just locker room talk. It's just locker room talk. And they said, "Well, even when they when he he mentioned that, oh, that's just being silly." Their 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 dismissiveness of the seriousness showed their genderized kind of thinking it's just locker room it's just locker right, room right and nobody's going oh this is actually perpetuating rape culture yeah or this is you know or this is this makes me feel terrible I hate this no not at all it, it was oh this is the way men talk boys to will men. be boys boys will be boys and Ugh. that was their dismiss well dismiss- dismiss- dismiss-
1: badass women will be badass women and uh, hopefully radicals will be radicals and hopefully we won't be silent thank you so much Anna, yeah, for being you. here and for talking to us, oh, and this is for being a part of the Asterix family, man. Oh, this is wonderful,
3: man, uh,
0: for, uh, Experience.
1: But what well, about, like, the bigger culture,
0: you know, like, the context? So, I mean, how do you bring that into your writing?
1: And this this allows us actually to kind of transition into the interview I did with Helena, right? Where, yeah. We're talking about sort of the weight and responsibility of having mm-hmm. to represent your culture in your writing. Yeah, we're we still doing? having that conversation. We are still having this conversation. Yeah,
0: but I've noticed, um, I mean, I've been out of academia for a couple of years now, but it's interesting that I think people are Looking back and criticizing some of those programs, and and saying like, yeah, we can't just a catch all. We can't and like these cultures aren't monoliths, and let's expand. You know the um the curriculum. You know for
1: these for on students. some level, on some, on level, some level, right? But the, yeah. then on the other level, you have we can't teach on American texts. We can't teach critical race theory. Um, we are indoctrinating youth by forcing them to read books from people from other cultures, right? You can't read a book that in any way isn't critical of U S culture or U S government. Like our podcast right now, this discussion we're having would be banned from certain courses um, in the States of Idaho, in the States of Arizona, (laughs) you know? And so you got to kind of stop and go like, Whoa, like, we're talking critical race theory because critical race theory inherently informs our experience in this country. But for somebody who doesn't necessarily have that like realization or ability. Yeah. Like, I don't know. We exist in this place where you don't want to erase the books that exist. You want to expand, but at the same time, people are terrified of somehow like learning that their country isn't perfect.
0: Yeah that that's so wild. Um, I saw like a news clip that there were some parents that were like white parents that were tearing up, like just because I don't want my child to learn or or, like be taught critical race theory doesn't mean I'm racist. And like this white lady was like crying about it. And it's like, okay, first of all, those tears mm -hmm, kind of sus, sus. (laughs) definitely sus, but, but it's, but it, it kind of does like, there's fear, there's fear there of like knowing like, yeah, like let's, let's open our eyes a little bit. Like our, this country is not perfect. Just like walk down any street, you know, uh, but in I any think,
1: city. I think the whole idea of American exceptionalism mm. is so toxic, you know, and it's, you have to buy into it to be a certain mm. type of American Um, And if you don't buy into it, then you're not American, you know? And I mean, I grew up Republican, I'll I'll admit that. Um, I became a lot more liberal in college, but I mean, I grew up in Texas and I knew a lot of Republican people and I knew a lot of people that were, I remember having a conversation with a friend once where she was like, people are intolerant of intolerance and that's hypocritical. And I remember agreeing with her, you know? And now I step back and I go, wait a second, what? Hold on a second. Of course you should be intolerant of intolerance. <laughs> like, like, You don't want to harm people. The whole point of tolerance is doing no harm. Right. But I think sometimes you get so stuck in some rhetorical traps or you're so influenced mm-hmm. by your friends and your neighbor and your community that you don't kind of stop and go like, wait, what I'm actually advocating for is going to hurt people. And I don't think that realization really exists. You know, I think Somebody's going, oh, critical race theory, well, that's going to teach people that, that whiteness is wrong or that whiteness is bad um, and that we enslaved people and that's not quite completely true and whiteness has done good things too, blah, blah, blah. And they're not stopping and going, oh, but for some brown kid, this will help them understand how to explain their role and their place and what they've experienced their entire life, that there is a name for it. And so I just, right. uh, it's so hard. Like every time I go back home or sometimes on Facebook with my childhood friends, my my husband's always like, I don't understand why you're still friends with these people on Facebook. And I'm like, well, it's because I grew up with them mm-hmm. and I know they're good people. I just also know that their way of thinking has been so warped by tribalism and by this feeling that they're being screwed. Yeah. And they cannot imagine that the people that look like them are the ones that are screwing them. Wow. So they look to the that's outsider, you know?
0: The scapegoat always, of course. I mean that that kind of I think that's been the easiest route. It's the it's the road most traveled, you know,
1: to <laughs> My it's like
0: wars this morning, but like but the same people yeah, it's that are, easy.
1: yeah, but the same people that are like bemoaning how we're losing population are the same people that are anti-immigrant, right? And this, mm. it's like the same people who are anti-choice are the same people that are pro-death penalty. And you have to take a minute, you have to go like, wait a second, I'm like what? How do yeah. you reconcile these views, you know? And they don't.
0: They don't. Yeah. A lot of the time, I
1: think that they just, they just
0: have... Uh, I don't know I don't want to like pigeonhole people but at the same time like they have these opposing views and they don't do like the critical internal what I want to say like shadow work in a way like (laughs) to 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 really reconcile to like ask themselves like why um and they just kind of stop right at the threshold of like well this is what I believe and like there's no questioning um and there's no and then there's just like they're walking around with like horse blinders on, honestly, and then like hurting people along the way.
1: But they don't and see then, it as hurting people. And that's the problem. Like, I don't I, I remember, you know, thinking about the Trump presidency and, you know, since Selena Maria mm-hmm. and I talked like literally the day after the <laughs> yeah, election. I was going to
0: ask about that.
1: That that tension is like palpable. Yeah. You know, one of the first things she says is, well, now the work begins, you know, and like looking back four years later, you know, we have to stop and think like, was the work done? And in some ways our country is so much worse today than it really was when the Trump presidency began. Or maybe we just know it's worse. Maybe we can now articulate it. Maybe it was always like this. But a lot of people have been radicalized and a lot of people have just fallen down like the rabbit hole I think, in a really disconcerting way. I don't know. And and they really honestly think that hurting other people or that all of that is justified. And it just, it's like the big lie, you know? Like, it is easier somehow to believe that the election was stolen from Trump than it was to acknowledge that they're actually an oppressive minority force in this country. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that the majority of people are actually against them. And so yeah. rather than even conceive of that, the big lie exists. Right. And so, yeah. uh, yeah. So I just, I think so much about this conversation and just in some ways how naive we were thinking that mm. there was work that could counter the machine mm. of self-entitlement Uh, Mm -hmm. and this, you know, promise of one day being a gaudy millionaire, just like Trump, uh, that people really bought hook, line and sinker. Right. Uh, I don't, I don't know. Even though Trump is no longer president, like looking at what's happening today, you know, with the GOP, you just kind of have to go like, wow, like we live in a country where 50% of the senators, you know, the Democrats represent, I think I read 40 million more people than the Republicans do. Wow. Yeah.
0: And I'm thinking of like all of the, yeah, yeah, definitely going down like um, a little bit of a rabbit hole, but just like thinking about all of the hate uh, um, that's been acted upon like against um, Asian Americans and-
1: And us, um, they hate
0: us. and, And yeah.
1: I mean, Carly, a large portion of the country just hates us, you and me, for being, for existing. Not because of anything we did, not because of anything we said or anything, just because we're immigrants who came over as kids and who grew up in this country, supposedly taking stuff from other people, even though that's not really how resources work. And I think that happens in literature too, you know, like a lot of what Elena Maria was talking about, you know, was this idea of like having to represent and having to kind of bear the burden of being. Um, and that's so tough. And that's tough for like little baby writers who just want to mm-hmm. tell a story. You know, Can you imagine being like a trans person of color in this country who just wants to write a story?
0: Yeah, and, and how inherently you know you have to like navigate that um trajectory just like knowing that anything you do is just like inherently political or politicized and then like having to like almost tiptoe and like walk on these eggshells and like knowing that any word that you put down to on a piece of paper is going to be used
1: possibly against you. Yeah. Just, just because of uh, how you identify or gotta be a place where we can both. And, and I realized the tension of it, right? We both want to have our culture. We both want to be different. We don't want to fully assimilate. We resent the idea that we have to be like everyone else, but also we don't necessarily want to be othered constantly. you know and there's and there's got to be a space where our culture can exist our culture can be but also where we're not completely subsumed and defined by it
0: yeah and doesn't um elena maria talk about you know being like a a baby author and and, and her her um, mentors would say like, oh, why are you writing about those people? And then she's like, well, Our these family. are my people. <laughs> yeah, these are my people. These are my family. This is my experience. Yeah. And I'm even thinking about, um, you know, like Amanda Gorman recently. And like the first, you know, like talking about like her bio, you know, like what what um, overshadows her name, like who yeah. she is. Um, and you could say like, yeah, the youngest or the first and things like that. But, um, and that's, and that's like pride of, or like, that's a point of like pride. And, and, but then like, you're talking about like representation, you know, like a, a little girl is going to look up to her and like, oh, I can be that. Yeah. And that. And that's great. And, um, but at the same time, like the fact that we're, it's 2021,
1: you know, we're still, um, discussing um, things that scholars were discussing in the 70s yes yes exactly yeah right yes but we're also we're we're discovering it in a different way Mm -hmm. you know because the internet should have allowed us to all be kind of anonymous bodies that just existed like our content existed Mm -hmm. we should have been able Mm -hmm. to free ourselves and yet instead the internet in some ways affirmed identity politics even more than ever yeah and so it's 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 always this tension that exists, right? I mean, I guess you could call it a dialectic, except Mm. nobody understands that (laughs) word for real. Um, (laughs) You know, it's how two opposing things can be true, a dialectic. Um, (laughs) And and yet uh, that is true. You know, actually this kind of brings up, um, I believe
0: in, in Vida Montes' excerpt, or like the, performance or maybe it was the interview where she talks about universal universality 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 there we go so again like I think that um universality is a taboo trope in a lot of um writing and different genres but then like we don't we don't want to be that You know, like, like our writing is universal, you know, but, like, people... I've always been told that
1: the universal is in the specific, Mm -hmm. right? That if you try to say, like, oh, this man experienced heartache, that's not going to be as impactful as, you know, like, Juan loved Maria. But then Mm -hmm. when Maria left him for Paco, you know, Juan experienced heartache, right? And even just the specificity of those details, like, ignoring the names even, like it's going to resonate more because it's a specific mm-hmm. situation. Right. Um, and yet the problem is, is that people can't always see that. But you mm-hmm. think about stories that, you know, sell, I mean, like, Of course, we can all understand the stories of, I don't know, for example, like Anna Karenina, right? Um, Even though it takes place in Russia, you know, or going back to like Mark Twain, we can look at like Huck Finn and understand his quandaries, even though we are not a white kid, you know, hanging out with an enslaved man (laughs) in misery, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> In the, right. of the 19th century right and yet because of the specificity of his experience we're able to kind of understand like the more universal um, themes and tropes um, and I think that that's part of the problem with like the cultural landscape is that we don't always embrace the specificity of mm. everyone's stories you know even though yeah. we know that to be true we're not seeking out um, you know, trans stories. We're not seeking out like immigrant mm-hmm. stories. We're not seeking out um, stories of like 11 year olds in Chicago, you know, growing up in bad neighborhoods or whatever. Um, right. You know, we, it's easier for us to put them in a cliche, like, oh, Chicago is bad than to stop and examine this one person's story, how they got there, what influenced them, what are the circumstances that led to this. Um, and yet in that individual story, you know, we can reveal a lot more of the bigger systemic problems than we can by just saying, oh, there are systemic problems.
0: Yeah. And I think that's such a uh, good advice for any person, any person, any reader, but also any writer that, um, yeah, just thinking like looking critically at the world and like expanding horizons, you know, like I, I read a lot of, women and I read a
1: lot of, um, <laughs> Oh, Latinos, you know, maybe. so I, I'm maybe now I is a good time for Yeah, me to like I, tell me what you're reading. Oh yeah, I will. I I can kick us off. I can tell you what I'm reading these days. Um, So I am definitely reading a lot of books on writing right now. Um, Mm. And I'm actually reading um, this wonderful book by um, William Goldman that's called Adventures in the Screen Trade. Um, And it's really like it's part memoir kind of about how he wrote the movies that he wrote. But he's also really going in and discussing like how you write a screenplay. Um, And it's really helping me with my nonfiction. And with other things. Nice. So um I definitely would recommend that. Um and then I would also for sure um recommend Rosal Alcala's book, actually, mm-hmm. uh, in preparation for the event that we're doing um with City of Asylum and the International Literary Festival. I've been reading her work and I just have to tell you, um, it's phenomenal. Uh, Mm -hmm. so I'm going to link to the, um, Cecilia Vicuña poems that she translated in our show notes. Um, but I'll also maybe provide a couple of other links to her work because it, she's just such a phenomenal and unique voice and the way she plays around with structure is really, really neat. So I would encourage anyone to read her. All right. Yes.
0: And that's coming up on May 15th for anyone. And you can find info about that event um, on cityofasylum.org. But yeah, for for me, well, I'm kind of between books right now, but I've been paging through uh, Jessica Salgado's Hermosa, which is um, the third poetry book in a trilogy. Um, And she's a LA poet and I just moved to LA. So it's very much about, yeah, like identity, survival, grief, transitioning, um, small moments, um, and also love. So... And it's, yeah,
1: very much. Have you ever read Chicana Falsa by Michelle Cerros? I haven't. No, tell me about it. It is, I read it a long time ago, but if memory serves, it is about, it's kind of like a hybrid memoir. Um, Then it's about growing up in Oxnard. Um, And so, and just that Southern California Chicano Mm -hmm. ways and thinking about identity and whether or not, you know, you kind of like fit in to what Latina life is in America. Um, and so I think, I think. sorry, I just made me think of what you're going through. And I was like, ah, you should read that. Um, I read it when I was in college and I just remember being like, oh, like Chicano culture is so different from Texas, like Latino culture. And just what a huge birth of experience there is in this country.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting too. Cause it's, um, you know, the last 10 years uh, in Pittsburgh, and always looking for like that Latino community, and then just being a total transplant now to you know L.A. A lot of people have said like, oh well, now you can find your people. Donde está tu gente? Están aquí, you know. And I was like, oh yeah, I, I gotta find the Latinos, but I'm not even there yet. I've only been here like four days, so <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know there's Latinos in L.A. Obviously. Well, I, I, can, I can hook you up. I got friends. <laughs> okay. okay,
3: cool. Thank you.
0: I need that. And and it's also like, yeah, about like making your own community, which is a lot about what And um, then talks well, it, about. Well, and there's a tension too,
1: you know, like mm-hmm. being literary Latina is not necessarily like, it's not a cliche for a reason. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's something to think about too. I mean, Latinos are some of the most well-read people I know, which mm-hmm. is also kind of fascinating. And yet they're not like, I don't know. There, there's, there aren't that many literary fiction and nonfiction writers, like given the proportion of the population, you know, like we're like, what, 20% of the U S population, 20% of the books on shelves are not by Latinos, you know? And so I think that's really kind of fascinating, like underrepresentation, overrepresentation. And mm -hmm. so even though you're going to be in LA, like literary LA is pretty cool though. Um, and yet I wonder, like, it is not the most Latino space either.
0: Damn. Yeah. We got to carve out that space and, you know, also like give space and uh, so many, I, I feel like this conversation touched on so many topics I know I to
1: like elaborate on I'm really excited but oh, we should probably wrap it up you should wrap it up okay so um yeah. for the road uh we've got that event happening um so I think that's that's pretty much our big thing um anything else you want to add for the road anything you're listening to jam now to whatever um yeah I can shout out May 19th
0: which is um lit fest uh featuring Viet Tan Nguyen um yeah, he's going to be talking about um, his work, The Committed, and it's going to be a really excellent um, installation of um, City of Asylum's first ever International Literary Festival. So
1: check it out. I'm so excited to be a part of it. Well, this was this was really wonderful. And
2: yeah. City of Asylum builds a just community by protecting and celebrating creative free expression. Asterix is a transnational feminist literary arts journal, co founded by Angie Cruz and Adriana E. Ramirez, committed to social justice and translation, placing women of color at the center of the conversation.
1: Charla Cultural is hosted by Carla Lamb and Adriana E. Ramirez. Voice of Goddess is Alexis Jabour, editorial support by Clarissa A. Leon. Production design and brand management by Little Owl Creative. Our theme song is Colombia Folk by Luis Alfonso. And thank you as always to our sponsors, Asterix Journal and City of Asylum.